All right, so if you'll turn to Psalm 22, which is going to be our focus today, um, we're going to go through the verses. Uh, we're going to, so we're, we're going to study the psalm, but we're also going to talk about the psalm uh, in some of its other contexts. And, and as is typically the case, um, very often we, we look and we say, okay, this is a psalm, and, and if you look at the heading, it, it says, uh, you know, we don't always have headings, but on this particular one, it says, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, which some people think that that was maybe a tune of the day. Um, and it's, a, it's labeled as a Psalm of David. So we, we usually, as we go through Psalms, we think about, okay, what was, what was the motivation for writing it originally? In other words, what did it mean to the writer? Uh, was there some context that, you know, that we can glean from that as to what it meant. Um, then we can think about how has it been used uh, through the years and um, as, as people of old would, would study this, uh, uh, study the scriptures, study the Psalms, uh, how was it used in, in days gone by? And then we often look at it, you know, there are some Psalms that are used in the New Testament, and this is certainly one of those. And then how do we look at that today? So there's a lot of different angles that we can look at this particular psalm. But by way of category, this is considered a psalm of lament. Um, a psalm of lament, uh, where someone is, is in a situation where they are not happy about their situation. They are lamenting. They are bringing that um, uh, grief, that sadness, that need, that desperation, that cry for help, they're bringing that to God. And by way of structure, I want to point out something, and, and if you'll just turn leftward to Psalm 13, um, I present this by way of example. Um, it is also a psalm of lament. Uh, I picked it because it was only six verses, but it, it highlights the typical structure of a psalm of lament. And I think you'll, you'll pick up on this. So I'm just going to read it. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? <laughs> Let me put a pause there. How long, O Lord, <laughs> will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? All right, so here's the, what's up, God? <laughs> have you forgotten me sort of talk? And then verse three, consider and answer me, O Lord. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So very often with Psalms of lament, you have this kind of, two-part structure where there is the lament, um, what's my situation? Um, in some cases, God, why are, aren't you responding to me? Um, don't you see me? Don't you hear me? Um, I know you can help me. Why aren't you helping me? That sort of thing. But then the second half very often ends with, but you know what? I know you do hear me. And I know you are there for me. And, and that's kind of how they wrap up. So we'll see that in Psalm 22. Um, 
it's a lot longer, uh, so we'll we'll cruise on through. But this is a this is a, some general structure that I want you to be aware of. And uh, one writer put it very well. It says Psalm 22 begins in the depths of an isolated individual suffering abandonment by God, but ends in a worldwide assembly of peoples bowing before the Lord in worship. The psalm divides naturally into two stanzas. Pain in the face of unanswered prayer, taking us down through verse 21, and praise in the light of answered prayer, from verses 22 to 31. And also taking into account um, some of the meaning or some of the intention behind how the order of the psalms is presented, it's worth noting that Psalm 20 is all about how wonderfully God answers prayer. Psalm 21 is about how wonderfully God answers prayer. So it is jarring when Psalm 22 starts off with phrasing that is gonna be familiar to all of us. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. I'm crying out for rescue but I don't think you hear me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's a famous passage, of course, and we know this is from uh, when uh, Jesus was on the cross. Uh, You'll find several verses, verse one, verses seven and eight, verses 18 are all spoken by Jesus from the cross. And we're going to look in a moment at uh, that passage in Matthew 27. So you can have your finger there if if you wish. I'm also going to point out another direct quote of Psalm 22 uh, in verse 22, which actually comes from the book of Hebrews. I'm crying out to you for rescue, but I don't think you hear me. Uh, This was... uh, as darkness um, uh, had been going on and that despair, and, and we know that that situation, we'll look at that in a moment. But here we have the desperate cry uh, of what's going, you know, this, uh, there's some suffering there. Um, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Um, it's bad enough when you're feeling bad during the day, but feeling at night seems worse. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many people I've had who have just dreaded night coming because their brain was so full of whatever they were going through. They knew they weren't going to be able to sleep. They knew it was going to be a horrible night, nothing to really distract them, and uh, it's, it's a miserable place to be. Verse 3 picks up some positives there. You know, 
and it, leading into verse 4, you know, our fathers trusted you. They were rescued. They cried. You know, they weren't ashamed because you came through for them. But here's the contrast, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Uh, feeling very low, people are mocking me for putting my trust in you. Verse 9. Again, a little back and forth here. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Lord, you have known me from my birth. From my earliest years, you have been my God. You know, clearly raised knowing that he was part of God's family and that God was a you know, the one true God and that, you know, was raised, you know, the Lord our God is one, uh, all those things. So he's looking back and said, you know, you've known me from the very start. And, you know, throughout scripture, if you, if your ears are tuned to that, you will hear these terms, you know, you took me from my, from the womb, uh, where we are reminded that God, God knows us, you know, not just from birth, but even before then. And, of course, that really grounds our, our understanding and, and our support for the sanctity of human life from the very moment of conception. On you was I cast from my birth, and so forth. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. You sense the desperation here. Now, as we head into this next section, it's worth pointing out that you know, it says it's a psalm of David, but we don't. We are unaware of any time in David's life that we can correlate this psalm to. Uh, you know, there are some psalms that we'll get through where you know, created me a clean heart, O oh God. Well, we'll be pretty sure that. In fact, I think the title even says, "Well, that was related to the sin with Bathsheba and so forth." We don't really know an experience where David had that would have matched with this. And we'll see that it gets very detailed in a moment. Um, so there have been kind of three ways of looking at this. Some people have said, you know, this is just a lament psalm. This is just David pouring out his heart um, in poetry. Um, and and it was designed to capture the desper desperations of, uh, of people and the, the, the feelings, it's designed to present that. And that's how it was used through the centuries, a song, a psalm of lament. And this makes sense to me. I mean, not only was, you know, David a, a poet and so forth, he was king. Uh, he was also judge as part of that. You know, he would hear people's stories he would hear probably their desperate cries wanting him to intervene, right? And, you know, he may have been inspired by 
the horrible stories that he heard, um, and that may have inspired him to write this. Um, in any event, some people look at this whole psalm and say, you know, this is just a psalm of lament. Don't make it out to be any more than that. It's a psalm of lament um, talking about what it feels like when you're desperate and what it, uh, what it feels like when you ultimately, as we'll see, are reminded that God is still trustworthy and he is still someone that you can come to, right? All right, so point of view number one, it's just a psalm of lament. Point of view number two is, well, it's a psalm of lament, but it has a dual purpose. It also has a purpose of uh, kind of being somewhat prophetic, uh, looking toward the cross. And of course, for those of us on this side of the cross, we can't help but see it that way, right? So this dual purpose thing, and we saw this in Isaiah, um, where very often a prophet would, would give a word to the people, and it was very appropriate for them to hear, but there was also this further out thing that, that we could see, right, that, that had meaning for us down the road. Um, point number three is, this is nothing but just pure prophecy. And they call back to, uh, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Acts chapter 2, where, where Peter says, you know, David was a prophet. And some people say, this is just David speaking prophetically. And that's why the things that we'll read are so specific, right? So three points of view there. Verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 12. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. This bulls of Bashan, apparently that was um, an area uh, which correlates to what is now the Golan Heights. Apparently it got a little more rain than the, than the surrounding area did uh, that made for better pasture, that made for bigger bulls. And so that was a thing uh, that they were referring to. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This person is in a horrible way. This phrase, my dogs encompass me. Uh, we know that dogs were domesticated, uh, you know, of few millennia ago, but in most cases uh, back in the day, they were feral and, you know, packs of dogs like scavengers, uh, even, you know, going through the dumps and eating corpses. And um, it's not like your family dog that we would think of today. Uh, when they said dogs encompass me, that's, these are not emotional support dogs they're talking about. This is a good place to turn to Matthew 27. And 
let's see, good place to start. Let's start with um, I guess I guess verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watching over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's a king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, for if he desires him, for he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from about the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is why, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, so here we have in context, um, in Matthew's account, those verses that we read. Uh, back to verse 7, all who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. And then here we have the scribes and elders quoting Psalm 22 saying, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him, which is kind of weird, right, that they're quoting it. Uh, The, my God, my God, why have you forsaken, and so forth. Um, From the perspective of the cross, I think it's easy for us to understand that Jesus would have known his scripture and Jesus would have been well aware of his place in history and so forth. But, but that scripture would have come to mind. I mean, was there ever a situation where a person were more desperate, wanting more to cry out for the Lord um, and feeling the full weight of all humanity's sin and that desperation of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, One commentator acknowledged um, the point I'll, I'll, I'll make in a moment, but then dismissed it, but I'm compelled by it and we've talked about it before, well, very often the rabbinical tradition, which throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was called rabbi, that the tradition was if you 
quoted a piece of scripture, very often you would quote the beginning of the passage. And the purpose of that was to call to mind the entire passage. So I, th- I think it's pretty compelling that when he says at the very last, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Couched within that desperate lament is the rest of the chapter. And that's where we find some hope. Let's skip down to verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Isn't it interesting? How many times have we referenced the Abrahamic covenant in recent weeks? Where God promised, I'm going to make you a people. And as I think was mentioned um, in our Heavens Declare video last time. And then as I spoke last week. The true people of Israel, the true offspring of Jacob are those who are joined by way of the cross, by way of Jesus. So when it, he says, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Here we have a hint of the humanity of Jesus telling us that we are part of that family. In the midst of the congregation, you know, it's, I will praise you. You might think I will speak for you because you are my brothers. Verse 24, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Some translations put that last phrase, and it is finished. Yes. So taken together, this lament with this amazing you know, voice of hope toward the end, I think it just really adds to the impact of that last phrase from the cross. Quickly, I'll turn to Hebrews chapter 2, which again pulls in this same concept. 
Of course, we know that Hebrews is focused on showing the superiority of Christ over everything, that he is the better priest, the better sacrifice, the better advocate, the better everything. verse 10 of chapter 2, it says, For it was fitting for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We just heard about some suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And here we have the quote. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So the writer of Hebrews, on our side of the cross, can look at that, go all the way back to Psalm 22, and realize that that portion of the psalm is something that would be spoken by Jesus so much so that that he basically puts those words in Jesus's mouth so that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers so it's it's interesting um, cuz we don't we don't have scripture quoting that from Jesus. We don't have where where Jesus said those words. But Hebrews, looking back and basically is saying, Jesus said them back through David's mouth. And of course, we know that not only was Jesus a better Adam and a better Moses, we know that he was a better David, right? David is somewhat of a type of Christ. So just, I think the writer of Hebrews is really um, highlighting uh, this really mystery of, of how this all works, of how can a psalm that perhaps David just meant as a song of lament, how does that somehow come out through prophecy and how does also that somehow come out of Jesus' mouth? pretty fascinating. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but this would be a great opportunity for audience participation if you have an explanation for that. Um, it just It's just cool. Uh, that's all I can say is um, when you see how um, when you see how the Bible itself uses pre-existing scriptures um, I think it's a, it's a just a good modeling for us on how we should use it. And of course, they were inspired when they wrote the things they write. So um, probably have perhaps extra influence of the spirit. But uh, they always treat the um, the scripture with um, it's obvious they believe it. It's obvious that they uh, have not just that they believe it, but they have confidence in it. So much so that they're willing to and, and, and confident in their ability to extract from that 
uh, meaning that maybe we, we wouldn't have ordinarily thought of. So um, pretty cool stuff there. So Psalm 22, a song of lament, a song of um, prophecy, a psalm of um, uh, Jesus, uh, I think uh, Hebrews would say. And again, a psalm that definitely has uh, a ring of hope. Um, far from uh, how it started. Uh, any comments? Yes. Well, you 